Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I'm the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference. Head over to canmedevents.com now to learn all about our CanMed 2022 event, which will take place May 3rd through 5th at the Pasadena Convention Center in Pasadena, California. This three-day event begins with a full-day medical practicum led by Dr. Bonnie Goldstein, the practicum's originator, as well as Dr. Dustin Sulak, Dr. Kevin Spellman, and Eloise Thiessen. Each of the presenters will share the latest research as well as their clinical experience and practice guidelines related to cannabinoid therapeutics. A new section of this eight-hour course is dedicated to reviewing different types of extractions, products, and optimal dosing for cannabinoid therapeutics. After that, we have two full days of presentations and panel discussions covering the latest research in the cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing taking place May 4th and 5th. The full schedule is up at canmedevents.com. You'll notice that each of the CanMed focus areas are anchored by a keynote presenter. Dr. Ethan Russo for science, Seth Crawford for cultivation, Dr. Bonnie Goldstein for medicine, and Grace Bandong for safety testing. Each of our keynotes, as well as many of our presenters and panelists, were guests on the podcast, and you can listen to all our previous episodes at canmedevents.com slash coffee talk. While you're at canmedevents.com, you can also watch video presentations and panel discussions from all of our previous CanMed events in our CanMed video archive. Presentations include CanMed 2022 keynotes Dr. Rousseau, Seth Crawford, and Dr. Goldstein, as well as Professor Raphael Mishulam, David Meary, Marcus Roggin, Zamir Punja, Stacy Gruber, and many, many more. As you can tell, we have a lot going on at canmedevents.com, and the best way to keep up with everything is to sign up for email alerts using the simple form in the page footer or on the pop-up form that you'll find at canmedevents.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Just look for CanMed Events. This episode's guest is Dr. David Jolie. He is the Associate Professor at the University of Moncton, where his team investigates cannabis and cannabinoids. Dr. Jolie has a unique expertise in the field of plant genomics and their associated microbes, and his work has been cited more than 1,000 times. Earlier this year, Dr. Jolie published a paper titled Genome-Wide Characterization of the MLO Gene Family in Cannabis Sativa Reveals Two Genes as Strong Candidates for Powdery Mildew Susceptibility. It's an important paper when it comes to breeding powdery mildew-resistant cannabis plants. As we discussed, PM is as common as it is destructive, and it torments all types of cannabis growers, from the hobbyist home grower to large-scale commercial operators. In our conversation, we discuss how PM infects cannabis plants and how environmental conditions play a role, the prevention and remediation options cannabis cultivators currently have, the difference between PM resistance and PM susceptibility, and how both variations can affect the severity of infection, 
how breeding out PM susceptibility genes provides more robust protection than breeding in PM resistance genes, what are MLO genes and how do they affect PM susceptibility, how MLO genes were used to breed out PM susceptibility in other crops, the importance of having a quality reference genome to investigate genes of interest, and much more. Before we get to my conversation with Dr. Jolie, I want to thank this episode's sponsor, Canopedia. Canopedia.net is the world's most comprehensive cannabis genomic library, and a recent update has made it easier than ever for customers and researchers to explore Canopedia's database of more than 1,400 cannabis cultivars to make smart breeding decisions and demonstrate novel genetics. Canopedia.net now has a number of new features to help explore your cannabis cultivar's genomic data. Improved search and filtering make it easy to identify cultivars of interest within the Canopedia database. New visualizations and variant tables highlight high-impact variants in genes of interest, including the MLO genes cited in Dr. Jolie's paper. Responsive design means you can view your reports on any screen. Private reports allow you to keep sensitive data hidden, and much more. To view all these updates, visit canopedia.net. That's K-A-N-N-A-P-E-D-I-A dot net to learn more. Okay, without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. David Jolie. Good afternoon, David. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right. So you and your team recently published a pretty important paper on powdery mildew susceptibility, which we are going to get into. But first, I wanted to lay some groundwork. Um, Our audience here on the podcast includes people from all facets of the cannabis industry, and not everyone's going to be intimately familiar with PM. So let's start by outlining the powdery mildew problem. So I was wondering if you could explain why is powdery mildew a threat to cannabis cultivation? And really, you know, what is at stake here? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, I would say that powdery mildew is a threat because it's very common, first of all. So it's not something rare that, you know, people are likely not to expect. So it's it certainly will happen at some point. So it's very common and it can spread very quickly. So when once a crop is infected, so usually the recovery options are often limited. So we don't want growers, of course, to use those nasty fungicides that we, we see sometimes on other crops. Uh, so we still have access to a few uh, envir- environmentally friendly options, but those are not always uh, very efficient or they are not uh, easy to apply on larger scale. Um, so I, now, about its impact on the plant itself, of course, it will rarely kill it because it's what we call an obligate biotroph, so it needs living tissues to uh, propagate, but it can severely reduce uh, photosynthesis when it gets out of control, especially, and thus it will, in the end, affect yield, so something that no grower wants. Um, another impact I, I can think of is, of course, it will affect the smell of the plant. So when you have a plant infected by powdery mildew, people will notice it has a different smell. 
And so we know that consumers are more and more interested in, you know, the, the flavors and the scent, uh, the aromas of their, uh, of their cannabis. So certainly it's a problem that people will want to avoid. Sure. And now it's called powdery mildew because it has sort of a powdery white look on the leaves when a plant is infected. And I'm familiar with the fact that it, it will show up on the leaves. Does it also infect the flower itself? Will it sort of affect uh, the bud that eventually would get to the consumer? Yeah, well, we, we often say that uh, that powdery mildew can affect uh, all aerial parts of the plant. So it will include stems uh, as long as they're non-woody. Uh, it can infect the leaves and it can infect some part of the of the flowers, not all, but like when we refer uh, to cannabis flowers, so of course we have the, the like the bracts, and those can be uh, can be infected by powdery mildew. But but we need to understand that powdery mildew. So you know you will hear a lot of things about powdery mildew. People will will say it's systemic and stuff like that. Uh, so if I can describe rapidly how, how powdery mildew works, so usually like. Uh, Powdery mildew first, it's, it's a fungus, right? So it will propagate mainly through its asexual spores that we call conidia. So those spores will land on a leaf and then they will germinate and produce those uh, kind of tiny projections into the cells from the epidermis and only the epidermis. So powdery mildew will only affect one layer of cells, which is the first layer of cells. It won't get further down than that compared with other uh, fungi. So it is certainly not systemic. It is very restricted to the epidermis. Now we have epidermis on leaves, but we also have epidermis on the stem. So that's why you can see uh, powdery mildew uh, elsewhere. So those tiny projections I was, I, I was talking about, so that gets into the plant cells. So they are needed by the fungus to absorb its nutrients from the plant, uh, but it will also be a way for the fungus to suppress the defense response from the plant. Um, but then uh, why do people think it's systemic? Uh, well, there's many reasons for that. So in, in, in other plants that uh, survive winter, for example, so people talk it was systemic because very rapidly in the spring, you could see powdery mildew appear and so the reason for that is that it can stay dormant within buds. And I'm not talking about cannabis buds here, but like any axillary buds that you can find on a plant. And it can also stay dormant on, on plant debris. Uh, and mostly, I think the big reason is that it can be present, but at a very low level. So people will think that the plant is healthy. They will then propagate it or share it with friends and then suddenly the conditions become favorable and it will be a big boom uh, for uh, the fungus. But it was there. It can stay, you know, dormant at very low levels. Yeah. So important thing you, you mentioned there. So environmental conditions can sort of bring on an infection. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, so that's why usually, so, you know, people will have uh, their mother plants um, and so the remoter plants are in a setting where usually the humidity is not as high as the cuttings will be once they, you know, once they start propagating that plant. Mm -hmm. 
So you have a plant that was maybe not in the ideal conditions for the fungus, so you don't see it, but it's still there. It's still somewhere. And then when you do the cuttings, you put them you know, into higher humidity level, and then the fungus likes it. It will start to propagate. And then when you, when you get your, uh, your plants outside, outside of the, of the uh, well, outside of the rooting period, uh, they, it will add time to uh, get established. And then people will often also see it getting more important during flowering. So is it because it had time to mature or because the canopy is maybe more dense or also because I don't know if the light can affect, I'm not sure it has been studied, but maybe like because we changed the, uh, the, the light regime during flowering, maybe it also helps the, the, the powdery mildew to propagate easily more easily okay so i know you briefly touched on it but i mean a a lot of your paper is is about trying to identify these genes that may be responsible for susceptibility to powdery mildew and then there's also um, the opportunity of finding powdery mildew resistant genes which i'm sure we'll get into but in the absence of sort of breeding for uh, resistance what uh, steps do cultivators currently have to either prevent PM infection or once it's happened, sort of remediate it? Uh, yeah, so I mean, right now, as, as I said at the very beginning, so there are a few options that exist to kind of reduce uh, the, the incidence of uh, the incidence of the disease. Um, so, and, and about those products. So I know there was, uh, there was a study conducted by the group of, uh, the group of Zamir Punja at uh, Simon Fraser U- University, who you also had on your podcast a year ago. Uh, so they, they tested a bunch of, uh, of different products. So, so some are based on uh, the use of, uh, bacteria that will attack the fungus, uh, so we can talk about uh, the products like uh, Actinovate or uh, Rhapsody. Uh, but they also look at products that are based on plant extracts, such as neem oil. Uh, and also some other products that are well known in the, in the organic farming, uh, such as uh, potassium bicarbonate, uh, or w- that we know uh, as Millstop is the name of the product that we often see for cannabis use. Uh, or uh, hydrogen peroxide also, which is another product. So there are different products. Some people will talk also about uh, silicon because in in other crops, it has been shown to be very useful to reduce uh, powdery mildew. UVC lights that are gaining also uh, popularity. So those are different methods that can be used to reduce uh, the incidence. But I guess before we have to use uh, those uh, those products. I think the key is to try to keep your plants as clean as possible. So as soon as you detect infection, remove uh, the infected plant parts. Try to not have dense canopies, as I, as I said uh, er- mm. earlier. Try to keep the humidity maybe a little lower. Uh, of course, it is a fungus that is uh, airborne. So those pores are very easily transported by by any air movement so you know outside it's easy to understand that i'm talking about wind but in inside you know just people move, moving around or uh so you can get spores on your on your clothes and then you get a, into another another room and then those spores can infect uh the plants and uh 
So yeah, so trying to reduce, so if you have a room that is completely infected, of course, don't go in that room before going into your cleaner room. So, you know, just simple steps like that, trying to reduce the inoculum levels. Excellent, excellent. And so that breeds, brings us to the prospect of actually breeding for resistance to pottery mildew, uh, which is what your paper is about. So first of all, Powdery mildew doesn't just infect cannabis, it infects a whole range of other crops. So I was wondering if you could maybe explain how breeders have successfully bred for resistance in other crops and how we might use that information to, uh, to achieve it in cannabis. Yeah, yeah. So as you said, exactly. So powdery mildew is a big family uh, of, uh, of fungal pathogens. So we have different species. Some will be very host-specific. Uh, and others have a, a broader host range. And it, it is the case for the one we have. And, and before we talk about resistance, this is something we can just talk for a few secs. So it's, it's a problem in itself. So when you have something that's very host-specific, as long as you don't have any of those plants nearby, so you know, you, you're less likely to get that disease. So let's say you have a cannabis field, but you know there is no cannabis field around, if, if the fungus was specific to cannabis, then it's less likely it will get into your field. But the problem is yeah. that the species we have uh, is not specific to uh, only to cannabis. So it can also infect a lot of different plants from the, uh, the aster family. So we have a lot of flowers, like when we think about uh, dahlias and uh, sunflowers, so they can get infected by that same species and also some weeds like ragweed can also be infected so that's something also to consider when we're growing outside but let's get into the the resistance at least what we learned from other crops so um i think some of the the, the first things that were discovered so it was on barley uh more than 50 years ago so they 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 discovered some uh accessions from Africa that were completely resistant to uh, to powdery mildew, and then that was the, the the first point. And so they started to investigate, trying to understand what was going on, and and they realized at some point that it, it is a form of resistance, but we prefer to call it like a loss of susceptibility. So resistance and susceptibility, you know, we we kind of try. We often think that. It is the same thing. So one is, uh, you know, the, the plant is either resistant or susceptible. But in terms of breeding, so when you breed a resistant plant, we can see it as we're bringing something new to the plant. We bring a new genes that will confer resistance. But there's another way to, uh, to achieve resistance is to reduce susceptibility. So, you know, you have maybe something in the plant that confers susceptibility, and you want to remove that from the plant. So, of course, people will think, well, susceptibility, if there was something in the plant that would cause susceptibility, it would have been, you know, eliminated by years mm -hmm. of uh, natural selection. But the problem is that maybe those genes are very useful for the plant. So the plant cannot get rid of them. But there is a caveat of having those genes is that they, you know, they cause susceptibility to some, to some fungal pathogens. And this is exactly what uh, some genes are, and people are getting interested into those genes, but MLO is one of those examples. So it's not a resistant gene, it's a susceptibility gene. Uh, 
So we need to find cannabis uh, strains that have either an inactive version of that gene or a mutated version of that gene that will uh, make it more difficult to the pathogen to infect. And so one interesting thing also when we're talking about uh, re resistance, so uh, as, as you said, so I published a paper recently about the MLO family, but almost at the same time, so there's another group that published a paper about PM1, which is mm -hmm. a resistant gene. So we can talk a little bit more about those two sides of the coin. Um, so resistant gene, the way that uh, I can describe it from a genetic point of view, is what we call uh, a gene-for-gene -gene interaction. So you have one resistant gene in the plant that is able to recognize one gene from the pathogen. So it's a little bit like, a, you know, like our own uh, immune system. So it's not, it's not working the same way, but it, it's easier to understand if we compare it to that. So we have something that is more of a recognition system. So that gene can recognize the pathogen and triggers defense responses that will kill the pathogen. Um, the problem with that types of resistance is that it's usually isolate specific. So it will recognize only a few isolate or, you know, one population of the pathogen, or it can for a while looks like if it recognized the whole, the, the whole species, but after a while, the pathogen will rapidly evolve to overcome that resistance. So uh, leading us to what we call a co-evolutionary arms race. Um, and so we constantly need to find new genes of that kind. So new resistant genes, and we can try to breed a lot of them together. So that would mean maybe it will be more durable. But usually if you have only one, it will likely not be durable. And now when we talk about susceptibility, then it's different. So susceptibility is usually more durable. And the reason for that is that you're removing something that the fungus needs to enter or to infect the plant. So it's very difficult for the pathogen to adapt to that kind of, of situation. Something is missing, so it cannot, you know, just create it. So that kind of uh, resist resistance, it's loss of, sus of susceptibility, right. loss of susceptibility will become a form of resistance. So is in that case way more durable. But the problem is it's also more difficult to breed because it's a form of recessive resistance, a little bit like if you have two people with brown eyes, you know, it's easy, it's easy to get uh, a, a child with brown eyes, but to get a child with blue eyes, then it, it depends on if there, there are some blue genes hidden somewhere. So it's the same thing here. You need to find, uh, to bring that level of... Um, Having the two mutated copies or, or the two different genes must be inactivated at the same time. So it's, it's a little bit harder uh, to breed. But if I come back to that, uh, to that example of uh, barley I was talking about, so 15 year, uh, 50 years later, so it's still working. So we can see that it's still very durable. So, yeah, and that was something that I needed to kind of wrap my head around when I was reading the paper was that um, you actually want less MLO for, for to really kind of simplify things. You want less MLO to have more resistance. And one of the quotes that I pulled out from the paper that really hammers this home is that you said expression of MLO is necessary for the successful invasion of PM. So 
really what you're trying to do is eliminate that MLO so it can't successfully invade, correct? Exactly, exactly. But then, as I said, it's it's not that easy because if that gene is still there, it's because it plays another role. And that's usually what people are seeing is that if you inactivate a susceptibility gene, you can have some pleiotropic effect. So in the case of MLO, so it's very variable. So in some crops uh, where they did that, so you have some, um, they will see that they have either uh, an increased susceptibility toward other d- diseases. So it's more resistant to powdery mildew, but it becomes more susceptible to other diseases. Or you will have uh, early leaf senescence and stuff like that. But in, in other crops, there doesn't seem to be any effect. So maybe under some conditions, it will it would cause something bad. But under the conditions that we keep our plants into, you know, we take care of our plants, we fertilize them and so on. So maybe it will never show any bad effects. So we don't know for cannabis it will, if it will show some of those pleiotropic effects. But if not, then it would become something very interesting to breed. Sure. And now, do we understand what MLO does to sort of help PM invade the plant? Like what the mechanism is there? No, even though people have been studying it for a while. So they, they consider MLO as a negative regulator of plant immunity plant immunity. Uh, But apart from that, we have no clear idea of what it does. There are other MLOs uh, that are not involved in powdery mildew susceptibility. So we know a little bit of the the functions that those genes are are doing, but clearly it it is not an indication that the the one we're talking about here that dictates powdery mildew susceptibility would have a similar function. Sure. Yeah. And and that's a good point. So there are more than one MLO genes in the plant and not all of them are sort of implicated in this PM infection, correct? Yeah, exactly. So in, in some plants you can have, I don't know, five, maybe six. Uh, okay, no, let's start wider than that. So most plants will have, you know, around 15 or more MLOs, but uh, within those MLOs, uh, you know, you have different subfamilies, if I if I can say, and there's only one uh, that is involved in uh, powdery mildew susceptibility. So the other ones they play other roles, as I was uh, explaining earlier on. But so, and even within that subfamily, so then it depends between crops. So for some plants, if you have, for example, three three genes uh, in that subfamily, maybe you will need to inactivate all those three to get resistance. But in other crops, there seems to be maybe one that is uh, the leader or more important. And then if you inactivate that one, it should be enough. So in cannabis, we found two genes uh, in that uh, in that subfamily, but we don't know yet if both are re- required uh, for, uh, for susceptibility or if maybe it's only one of them. Okay. <clears throat> and now to your knowledge, are there PM resistant strains of cannabis out there currently? Do they exist? Um, resistant strains, I would say yes. Uh, resistant strains that are resistant because of MLO inactivation, uh, I'm not sure, maybe. Hmm. Um, so because, as I said, so we have those other examples like, like the, 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 the strains that have the PM1 gene 
And I'm aware of other people that have those plans that will stay completely, you know, clean of powdery mildew. And even though they are surrounded by, you know, plants that are covered with it. So clearly there, there are probably a lot of those genes that are similar to PM1. Uh, so it's just a matter now of, of uh, identifying a lot of those genes and trying to bring them all together to have a very resistant plant that will resist to, you know, a lot of different uh, powdery mildew populations. MLO, I'm not sure. The problem right now is that if we look at what was done for, uh, for barley, and it was the same for peas and for tomatoes, so the, the plants, the accessions they found that had that MLO resistance it was always, you know, in, in ancient land races and stuff like that. Something that, you know, we, we haven't explored that much uh, for cannabis yet. So, and even if we consider going back to wild populations, then it will be a matter of trying to find those wild populations because it's not clear if they still exist. Right. And yeah, and so going back to sort of that, that PM1 side of the coin, as you said. So, and if I'm correct, that group that, that published on the PM1 gene, they were looking at one SNP um, to sort of indicate whether or not a cultivar was resistant. Is that enough information to, to really make that call? It seems... Um, well, I mean, it, it, it would not be a first for sure. So if we mm -hmm. look into uh, systems uh, where uh, a lot of different genes uh, like that have been identified and studied. So we can think about wheat uh, with regards to rust, which is a big problem affecting wheat, or even uh, potato in its relation with late blight, which is also another big, uh, big problem. So uh, in those two systems, there is a lot of genes like that that have been identified. And sometimes that's, that's the only thing that will be different between a susceptible and a resistant plant. You have one SNP in that resistant gene that will cause uh, an amino acid change and that's enough to gain resistance or lose it depending on how you want to see it but but then the same is true on the pathogen side so that gene that is recognized mm. only one right. snip can make it not being recognized anymore so that's that arms race i was uh, i was referring to so it's always difficult to predict how long it will uh, be useful Sure. And then I guess another point that you had made is that there can be a lot of different ways to, to skin the cat here. It could be a, a, a combination of different proteins that are inferring the um, resistance or the lack of susceptibility. So um, it could be that, uh, you know, a SNP that's identified in a certain population might not necessarily apply to a wider, a wider population, correct? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, we don't know enough about uh, about those genes uh, as of now. And, and then there's also uh, that idea. So for now, I talked about susceptibility and resistance, but within resistance, so what I was talking about mostly is what we call uh, qualitative resistance. So it's either you're resistant or you're not. But then there's mm -hmm. also what we call quantitative resistance, which is a lot different, uh, harder to breed as well, because it's we don't know exactly how it works. Uh, there is a lot of genes that are in, involved, each one, you know, playing a minor role and it's together that they bring resistant, uh, re resistance to a strain. And um, so 
trying to find an example for cannabis would be maybe the, the genes that have been identified by the medicinal genomics group. Uh, so they identified um, chitinases and uh, tomatins uh, that seem to correlate with the levels of powdery mildew resistance. So in that case, I would tend to believe that maybe they are involved in, in something more quant quantitative. And so those are very interesting because quantitative resistance, as I said, is harder to breed. But as anything that is harder to breed, it's also, it also means that it's harder for the pathogen to defeat. Hmm. Interesting. And another thing that, that I, I picked up in the paper that sort of maybe talks to maybe more of a quantitative type of lack of susceptibility was that, if I understood correctly, hemp actually has fewer MLO genes in which case it might be less susceptible to PM? Did I get that right? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, I would say it's a hypothesis that we, that we put forward. Uh, of course, in our paper, so we looked at five different genomes. Uh, those right. genomes are certainly not all perfect. And there was only one that was really from hemp. Uh, uh, so phenola genome CBDRX is, is uh, considered as, you know, having some hemp ancestry. Uh, so those two were the one that only had one, uh, well, for one of the copies, they, they didn't, for one of the two genes, they only had one copy. So is, is, is this an indication that hemp would be more resistant? And, and it's also, uh, it's also hard to talk about hemp because what we call hemp in Canada is sometimes different than hemp in the U.S. So hemp in right. Canada, it's often what we call industrial hemp, uh, while in the U.S. hemp is more like CBD producing plants, but they often have the same ancestry as, you know, THC producing plants. Sure. Yeah. And, and so you touched on the fact that sort of the process that you went through to investigate these genes is you used a variety of different reference genomes um sort of how important is it to have a really strong reference to do this type of work and sort of what was the variation in quality that you encountered yeah so i think i mean any people doing research is is always looking for one reference genome so you usually that's what they have in other crops so and when we started uh working um we were looking for which one we could we should use as the reference because it was not clear like you know a lot of people w were considering purple kush as the reference just because you know there was a first draft of it in 2011 uh but we were aware that purple kush was not the best one so some people were considering cbdrx as as the new reference genome because uh, you know it, it has a very high quality so we decided to uh first decide on which one we would call our reference genome. So we had to look at first Jamaican lion, CBDRX, and purple kush. And then only looking at those three, it was not easy to decide which one was the best. So, you know, each one has its, has its benefits, I, I would say. So CBDRX was, you know, a very clean, I would say. So maybe too clean. We'll talk about that maybe, maybe later. So you know, uh, very less repetitive compared to the other genomes, uh, and it add the um, it it add a chromosome level assembly, which was uh, very interesting. So we kind of uh, 
you know, we were considering maybe that one is the best one. Jamaican Lion was also very good, but it was uh, maybe a little bit more repetitive. Uh, and also uh, there was no chromosome level assembly, at least available to the public. Uh, Purple Kush, well, it was the worst of the three, so we can skip this one for now. Uh, but so it was, you know, deciding between Jamaican Lion and CBDRX. And from what I said, CBDRX, you know, might have looked better. But as I said, it was maybe too clean because when we started looking at our gene family, so, uh, um, so we realized that one gene that we found in, in the other genomes was absent from CBDRX. So is it something real? Maybe CBDRX is missing that gene, so we haven't looked into that. Uh, or has it been, you know, clean a little bit too much, or they try to remove, you know, repetitive elements from it, and by accident they, they remove uh, that gene. So it's not, it's not clear. So we kind of decided to move forward with more than one genome, and then we decided, okay, so we're just going to add the other two uh, that were available at the time. So Finola, which was also interesting because it was hemp, so, you know, it was maybe a little bit different. And then Jamaican lion, there was also a male version. Um, so we decided to add that as well because then we had Finola and Jamaican lion males. Uh, so two males, three females. So just to see if there could be differences as well, you know, with the Y chromosome and the X chromosome. And did you find any difference there? Uh, the well, there were, there were some differences, but, you know, at this stage, uh, is it, you know, real biological differences or are they differences that are caused by, you know, technical uh, aspect of, you know, some genomes being uh, better than others? So for sure, I would say that uh, Purple Kush, uh, Finola as well. So, you know, they were showing a lot of... Um, errors in the sequences when we were looking at the genes like if we would try to transcribe those genes uh, they would not transcribe well into proteins because they had you know some extra some extra letters or some missing letters and again we talk well maybe it's a reality maybe those genes have been inactivated in those plants but then when we looked at other data from the same plant so we had to look at some transcriptomic data from from those plants and we see that those uh, differences were not there. So clearly it was an error during the assembly process. So those two had more problems. I, I would say they were more fragmented as well. So uh, it was, um, so for those two, it was easier to say that we would prefer not to work with those two. Mm -hmm. Maybe they will get better at some point. I don't know if they're still trying to, you know, uh, to, to make them cleaner or to make them better. Uh, but for the other two, it, it really the difference that we talk. So maybe CBDR is being too clean, but Jamaican lion, I don't know, maybe still too repetitive. You know, it's hard to come with the perfect uh, genome. And so how does the, the quality of reference genome that, that we were working with in cannabis compare to some of these other crops? Are we, are we still very far behind? Uh, we're not that far behind. I mean... Uh, I think we're we're certainly getting there. It's just a matter of uh, of the community, you know, deciding on which one is their reference, and then we start building on that one. Mm. Um, I think one of the problem we had is that you know, and it, it's not only 
for I mean it's the same for all crops and I would say for all organisms you know people it's so easy right now to sequence things to sequence complete genomes people will sequence it the quality is not good but how oh, we're still gonna you know upload it onto uh, NCBI and so you end up having access to a lot of genomes but the quality is not there and then if you try to work with those then it it's you start with a big you know, a big bias in your study because you mm. try to predict genes, but if the genome is not complete, then you will miss some genes that will lead you to erroneous conclusions. So it's important to have a good reference genome, but I think we I think we have we have maybe two right now. So I think we're we're getting there, yeah, for sure. Yeah, but to your point, it we sort of need to choose a gold standard so everyone's working off the same reference, correct? Yeah, but then it leads us to, you know, maybe the other problem that we have is that usually uh, when you have a reference genome for another crop, so that plant that, you know, was used to create that reference genome is also accessible to scientists. So people can share that plant or that accession. And so they will conduct studies on that same plant from which the genome was obtained. And right now, I mean, it's not a matter that people don't want to share it, that they cannot share the plan because right. it's forbidden. So Jamaican lion, I mean, I'm sure that uh, people would like to get their hands on it. But right now, especially between countries, so from Canada, we cannot import from the U.S. And I'm not sure you guys could export anyway. Uh, so it's it's very a big problem. So and even going further, so, you know, most crops, they have those germplasm repositories, you know, that... Uh, that scientists have access to. So they have all those different accessions, land races, sometimes mutants, uh, or sometimes mapping populations. And that's how, that's how the scientific community will move forward more rapidly. But we don't, we don't have that for cannabis yet. Hmm. So winding down here, for the, for the purposes of maybe breeding out some of these MLO genes that are causing susceptibility, where do we go from here? What are sort of the next steps? Well, what I just talked about. So, if we could have access to more plants, you know, more, more, uh, you know, a lot of because right now we know that what's available in the commercial space is still very limited from a genetic point of view. So we know that there are huge, like, yeah, there is a lot more variation elsewhere. Uh, so we need to to get our hands on that and see if that. MLO-based resistance it maybe already exists within uh, that mm. germplasm. If it doesn't exist, then maybe we need to create it. So we have access now to some biotechnological tools like CRISPR to do some genome editing, but those tools are not working for cannabis now. So I know a lot of people are trying to develop those tools, but once we get them, it will be, and I'm not talking only about MLO here, uh, but you know, for any trade that we will discover maybe a, a, you know, a link between a genotype and a phenotype. Let's talk about you know, a trichome formation or flowering or uh, other types of disease resistance. So you know, we, we see correlation between the genomic data and, the, and, and what we observe of the plant, but we need to confirm those by you know, inactivating genes or overexpressing genes, so some functional studies. But right now, we don't have the tools to do that. So that's where we're we're lagging or where there is a bottleneck right now. Do you worry about how the cannabis community might accept 
CRISPR? Uh, well, you know, maybe. So <laughs> that's where also we, that's why I always like to, you know, have both words. So we develop the biotechnological tools, but at the same time, we try to explore as much as possible, you know, the natural variation that, that we have. And then if, if the community really doesn't want to hear about CRISPR, then maybe we can find some alternative that have been accepted by the, the, the organic farming world. So when we talk about uh, traditional muta- mutagenesis, so, you know, we have the, the uh, pink ruby grapefruit, which was created that way, but you can still grow it like organically. So <laughs> to me, CRISPR is not different from that. It's even better, but we'll go with what people accept. All right. Well, it seems like the the regulations, though, are really an impediment to really making a dent in this and many other um, breeding breakthroughs that we could be making. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, at the same time, you know, doing research on cannabis was not even possible 10 years ago. So things are moving fast. So maybe those those uh, impediments will also fall in the near future. Let's hope so. So. Um, before I let you go, I wanted to give you the opportunity to share with the audience, um, any additional resources you think might be of interest or any website or social media to stay in contact with you, uh, share away. Uh, well, I mean, I'm on Twitter, uh, I D J O L Y. So that's my, uh, username there. Uh, so I, I don't tweet that often, but, uh, you know, when I tweet, it's usually because we have a new paper or something. So that's a good way to know uh, what we're doing. So we, we published quite a few in, in the last uh, few months. So we were also working on, you know, um, looking at uh, beneficial bacteria or they can promote uh, cannabis growth and stuff mm. like that. So there's a, you know, it's not only very... Uh, hard to understand genomic stuff, but we also do other type of stuff. So, and hopefully we'll continue to, uh, to look at that in cannabis. So, and not only disease resistance. So, you know, we're interested in looking into other traits. Uh, so we'll see what the future brings. All right. It will be the topic for another podcast. I'm sure. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again, David, for joining us. Um, and hopefully we'll see you out at CanMed. For sure. See you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. David Jolie. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed. And thanks again to this episode's sponsor, Canopedia.net. Our next episode will drop October 13th. That's two weeks from today. In the meantime, please do check out CanMedEvents.com to view the CanMed 2022 schedule, explore the CanMed archive, listen to previous podcast episodes, and sign up for email alerts. If social media is more your thing, you can stay connected with us on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Speaking of Facebook, check out the CanMed Community Facebook group. It's a great way to connect with fellow attendees and presenters in between events. And one last thing, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Doing so really helps the podcast reach more listeners. Okay, that's it from us. 
Stay safe, stay healthy, and please do join us for the next CanMed Coffee Talk.